Hello and welcome to the Media Mag podcast, the podcast for students of film and media. I'm filmmaker and silver fox, Giles Goff. And I'm cinematographer and box packer extraordinaire, Phil Coleman. And in this podcast, we'll be taking some of the trickiest concepts in media and breaking them down into simple terms. Let's hear our first question this week. Hi guys, my name's Emily and I work in a sand school. Could you tell me what intersectionality is? So that is a great question. Yeah. What is intersectionality? Phil, how confident do you feel talking about intersectionality and how it links to third wave feminism? Oh yeah, obviously. Um, not very. Is that, is, that the, is that an answer I can give? Like, not almost not at all? Yeah, it is a bit of a fiddly one. But we'll untangle it all in the theory drop. (laughs) (laughs) So, we are not afraid to search far and wide to get you the best guest possible. And for this one, we went as far as New York City itself, the Big Apple, to get you the best guest to talk about intersectionality. I'll let her introduce herself. All right. Hi, I'm Tori Marroquin Perkins. I'm a social studies and history teacher at Avenues the World School in New York. I'm also a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner and the leader of the Latinx Club. Tori, it is such a joy to have you on the Media Mag podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. So let's get into it. What exactly is intersectionality? Intersectionality, it's a, it's a theory described by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. And she wrote it, so her background is that she was a, she's a lawyer and she basically looked at a series of case studies, three case studies, I believe, in which women, black women particularly, were trying to get... Um, win certain cases and they realized that they couldn't win these cases if they were treated just as black people or just as women but because they were black women they were they were facing discrimination that was predicated on both sex and race and so Kimberly Crenshaw created this this term intersectionality to describe those moments when looking at just one source of discrimination is not sufficient to really understand the system of oppression that's that's occurring. And so she created this term really thinking about, um, in that specific context, black women, but it's since Mm -hmm. grown and it's since described a series of ways in which um, people's different identities and lived experiences can contribute to the systems of advantage and disadvantage that they might encounter in their lives yeah so it's interesting because kimberly crenshaw comes up with the term but she's not she's not the first one to come up with the the concept is she no i mean you have books by for example angela davis right on women class and gender right so she's Mm -hmm. definitely not the first but she's the one that really gives this very clear this language right and language is really important and so having that word to really describe those often complex systems and experiences, having one word that really encapsulates both what, what was taking place, but also how to then build more inclusive and stronger movements, right? Yeah. Because it's not sufficient if you're just trying to get um, women's rights, for example, when within just the umbrella of women, there are so many different kinds of women, right? Yeah. And so to be able to have a women's rights movement, you need to talk about trans rights, you need to talk about disability rights, you need to talk about access to birth control, right? Which is also going to involve systems of class, right? Mm-hmm. Intersectionality is really this idea of there's no one size 
fits all in terms of solution. If you're talking about something like feminism and trying to push for women's rights, you can't yeah. do that with one size fits all type of policies. You have to be thinking broadly about the different ways to include all women. Mm. Um, so when you talk about when we talk about women's rights, we're talking about lots of different women within that umbrella. And so intersectionality, you know, it gives us the kind of language that leads to us talking about things like straight white male. That term, yeah. straight white male, we use that, that over and over again. It's become a common way to, to, to describe um, someone who's more privileged, right? And the yeah. reason it's that string of words is because intersectionality shows us that it's not just the fact that you're straight. It's not just the fact that, that you're white. It's not just the, the fact that you're male that may create this, this experience of privilege. It's the way all three of those intersect. Yeah. And then if you add wealth to that, that's a whole other level, right? It's and been so, at the center all these little Venn diagrams, effectively. Exactly, and so it's why teachers, educators, when we are, are, when we go through diversity, equity, and inclusion training, it's why we start with ourselves in, in in these in these trainings. We start with thinking about who are we and how are we encountering the world. What are our identities? So, for example, I identify as a straight Latinx woman, right? Mm-hmm. Cisgender. So all of those things kind of come together. And at certain moments, I'm going to encounter privilege, right? I'm also a light-skinned Latina. So my privilege is going to be different than someone who is Afro-Latinx or someone who's a disabled person or someone who, right? So there's so many different ways in which our identities create moments of hurdles, burdens, opportunities. And the work of Kimberly Crenshaw really just seeks to create, the original work of, of creating this term of intersectionality the idea was to give a language to really describe those different um, systems of oppression and opportunity. Fantastic. You talked about uh, movements at one point there, and obviously um, intersectionality is like a, a really key concept when you apply it to um, third wave feminism. How would you describe third wave feminism? How are those two terms linked? Of course. Uh, so one thing I'd actually like to say is that the, the, the idea of framing the feminist movement as a series of waves is interesting. It offers, a, it helps us see certain things like, oh, okay, well, at this moment, a group of women gathered around this issue and then hopefully saw it lead to societal change, right? And then it kind of fades away and then it comes back. And, you know, that's a little bit, a tiny bit problematic too, because these waves never fully dissipate, right? Even the first wave feminism, people use that framing to talk about the the women's voting rights right um, yeah. movement, which succeeded in the US in 1919 and Britain, I think 1928, women got the right to vote, might have that wrong. Um, no, that sounds about right. 1928 is when they get the right to vote on the same the same standing as, as men. Right. And, and so the first election in the U.S. that women were, were able to participate was in 1920. So when people yeah. describe waves, they the first wave is voting rights. OK. But behind that, there's always been a movement for economic rights, for equal political standing. For, yeah. Right. So the so this idea of like the wave metaphor is a little bit problematic. I just find it interesting to think about what that metaphor helps us see and what it might kind of hide behind it, which is that there's always people seeking more rights and, and always people yeah. who are existing within systems of oppression. Right. Like suffragettes yeah. in Britain were arrested and they went on hunger strikes. And that happened here as well. And they were force fed mm-hmm. while they were doing these hunger strikes. So, you yeah. know, there's always that kind of ongoing backlash against quote-unquote unnatural women right yeah um but so to your point which is like the connection between third wave and third wave feminism and intersectionality um one of the the reasons why they're connected is because of the limitations of both first and second wave feminism which is that they tended to consist 
I mean, not only of white women, absolutely not. There were always women who were um, women of color who were fighting for their rights as well. Or, for example, if you think about second wave feminism as taking place in the 60s, well, that's right at the same time as the civil rights movement is happening. And you have black women who are absolutely at the forefront of, you know, fighting for for rights for for black women. Right. And black people in general. But in terms of second wave feminism itself, right, if we think about which voices were centered, which issues were were, were focused upon, it was often the issues that were uh, key to middle class, upper middle class white women, right? Mm -hmm. So workplace progression, harassment, divorce, fewer legal impediments to divorce, equal um, access to things like bank accounts, right? Um, Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a time period where women couldn't get a bank loan in their own name, could they? Exactly, exactly. So, for example, one of the things that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was so involved in, the reason why she ended up becoming getting to the Supreme Court, was because of several of those financial and legal issues that barred women from having certain things like that. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned bank accounts. Like, you had to have a male co-signing to be able to open a bank account, right? Like, that's ridiculous. You know, second wave feminism did a lot. And it did a lot for all women, and yet the the central issues that they focused on were not the central issues that if the movement had been more open, would have been inclusive to, right? The, yeah. And also it left out a lot of the key issues that non-white women would have centered. Yeah. It's it's one of those things that second white feminism was important, right? Um, there's a reason why people like Gloria Steinem became household names, Rebecca Ginsburg, for example, and yet there were limitations. And so yeah. then in the 80s, you have people like Kimberly Crenshaw, Angela Davis. I mean, she, she'd been around for a couple of decades at this point, but more more of that thought is receiving more attention. And yeah. third wave feminism presented itself as much more intersectional, back to that term. And so what you end up having with third wave feminism is that if a movement only centers white voices or is only led by white leaders, it immediately faces a backlash, right? Like that's something yeah. that has become a key understanding of what feminism is. It's not just for white women. It's not just for cis women, although now there's the whole turf, trans-exclusionary mm. radical feminists. Like that is something that it's like a place of tension within the third wave feminist movement. And, and not every woman who was a leader in the second wave movement remained only connected to those ideals, right? Like I actually had the enormous privilege of meeting Gloria Steinem uh, a couple months ago. Yeah, I've just been, I've been waiting to see how long it took for you to bring up <laughs> that you met Gloria Steinem. It's been taking all the self-control I've been I've got to, to stop myself saying, so when did you meet her and what was she like? And all the rest of it. So we, I will keep my fanboy in check. It was so hard for me to keep my fangirl in check, honestly. Um, <laughs> Well, so I met her at this performance from an indigenous group. And when we met, you know, and we started talking, I was struck by how much she had, she was involved. And I looked this up later to kind of double check. There were several indigenous leaders she was active with in the 60s, 70s and going further on. What I was just struck by is, you know, I understood second wave feminism as very kind of focused in a particular, but to a particular demographic. Mm -hmm. But it's also not to say that those leaders remain static, right? What they were famous for in the 60s and 70s isn't necessarily who they are now 40 years later, right? Some of our listeners might not necessarily know who Gloria Steinem is. So can you just give her the quick sort of Wikipedia version of who she is? (laughs) She's famous for a lot of things. Uh, One of the things that 
Um, she she was a key founder of Ms. Magazine, MS. Magazine, mm-hmm. which was a, uh, an important um, magazine for different feminist issues. Yeah. She, there were also a couple of other um, periodicals she was involved with. Her, her background is she was a journalist, okay? Yeah. And so she did a, lo- a, a lot of early covering of the movement and then became kind of a central voice in the movement. Um, she spoke openly about an abortion she had had, which also led mm-hmm. to kind of a quick focus on, as, was, as part of this movement that focused a lot on access to abortion and reproductive rights. And yeah. she became one of the main public speakers, I would say, of, of the movement. So not necessarily one of the ones who's, who's writing policy or trying to do po- political change the way someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, yeah. but she's kind of at the microphone, right? At the, at the head of the yeah. rallies. And she became also very famous. She's a very glamorous figure. She had the, this long blonde hair and these sunglasses. And I'm not trying to focus on that as like, you know, I hate the idea of like talking about women and what they're wearing, but it was an iconic look. It was something that, you know, became one of the visuals, one of the graphic images of the movement were the pictures of her at the podium, at the microphone, um, taking this very prominent role leading a movement. And, and she's, yeah. you know, she's not, she's not the only one. There's one thing, we, we, we talk about third wave feminism, and there's one term I keep hearing is, is like fourth wave feminism, as if to say, suggesting that third wave is, is done. I haven't really yet to find a, a concrete example or a definition of what fourth wave feminism is. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Okay, so let's talk about when third wave feminism starts a little bit. So I mentioned 1989, Kimberly Crenshaw comes, you know, mm-hmm. writes about intersectionality, but also 1991, where the Anita Hill. Um, hearings in the house and what that was is that Clarence Hill which was who who is still actually currently on the Supreme Court he I'm going to mention his race just because it's relevant to to the story yeah. he's a, a black man right and in order to be confirmed he had to uh, there were witnesses called to his character to test his character and this one I, I think she's a lawyer named Anita Hill who worked for him was a staffer for him and she testified about the sexual harassment she experienced um, yeah. as an employee of his. Nonetheless, he's still confirmed. Kind of like with Brett Kavanaugh's hearing more yeah. recently, the sexual harassment allegation goes nowhere. He's still confirmed. And like I said, he's still on the Supreme Court today. But at the same time, a lot of women respond to it. And more women start talking openly about the harassment they experience in the workplace. Kind of like a precursor to hashtag me too. So a lot of people identify that as like the third wave feminism. Like that's kind of like the start of the third wave. And so if you had to talk about like where does it then become fourth wave, people say social media. Because yeah. it's, it's not necessarily that the issues are themselves different. But it's how you explore the issues. Circling back to the example of hashtag Me Too, you have people like Harvey Weinstein accused by multiple women in Hollywood. And that hashtag becomes both a rallying cry and a way for a lot of other women around the world to speak openly about their own harassment and abuse on social media. That's kind of one of the things that people often use to distinguish the fourth wave. The issues aren't necessarily different, but how you organize and get the word out is different because it's happening online. I think that's what I'd heard, that fourth wave feminism is basically third wave feminism but with a Twitter account yes I mean you, yes I would <laughs> I would say that's that's fairly accurate fantastic listen Tori I could talk to you all damn day uh, but we have to stop somewhere so thank you so much for talking to us about this day and thank you for going into so much depth and we really appreciate it absolutely I'm happy to help so Phil that was Tori what do you think so I really liked how she explained intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the fact that 
she, she did it in such a way that it just, you know, someone like me who's never heard of that before. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe not never heard of it, but never knew how to explain it before. Apologies. <laughs> yeah. Um, just just was able to explain it in a way that was easy to digest. Um, I didn't realize that, you know, that would be the term that you would use to describe somebody who, say, white, male, and rich. And yeah. that being sort of like a source of, you know, a, a source of some problematic elements that would yeah. that would come about in today's society. That's not something I would have um, I would have realised at first. So really enjoyed that. I thought that was um, I thought that was very informative and, and and easy to understand. Absolutely. So Kimberly Crenshaw came up with the term, but Bell Hooks is probably the best author to talk about when it comes to intersectionality. She wrote loads of papers on a wide range of topics. She wrote about the struggles of being black and a woman long before Crenshaw came up with the term. Yeah. And she wrote about black masculinity, which touched on hip hop culture, which she said was uh, just a black minstrel show okay. an imitation of dominated desire not a real articulation not a radical alternative mm. like she was so eclectic one minute she's critiquing beyonce's lemonade album next minute she's writing children's books she was insane <laughs> she's, she's, that's quite a um that's quite an eclectic way of doing things isn't it like that's go jumping from one thing to another let's you know like to the hill yeah definitely so bell hooks is actually the inspiration for this episode mm. as she passed away recently oh. and i wrote an article about her in an upcoming issue of media mag that looked into her life and works she's definitely a person you want to know more about and gonna have to look into it yeah definitely so there is one thing i want to say about intersectionality that i think is important i think it's hard to talk about intersectionality without also talking about privilege privilege is usually defined as a special right, advantage, or immunity that is available to someone based on something that person has no control over, like their race, gender, sexuality, or class. So we often hear people talking about white privilege, male privilege, straight privilege, etc. And I think if I were a young person listening to us talking about how Mm -hmm. white straight males are one of, if not the dominant group in society, then... I think you might start to get a bit of a chip on your shoulder because <laughs> you're thinking, hey, my life is still really difficult and I've got plenty of barriers getting in my way. Now, if that is you, then all I want to say is that those barriers you are facing are still real and they're still valid. We're not saying you don't have any difficulties in life. All we're saying is that your race, skin colour and sexuality are probably not the reason why your life is difficult. So that's one of the things I wanted to get across. I think that's I think that's fair to say, yeah. The thing I really like about intersectionality is it doesn't treat any one particular group like a monolith. It doesn't say, well, you're part of these, so you think this. Mm-hmm. It really forces you to actually focus on people and sort of get to know yeah. where they're coming from specifically. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's so much to it. So we'll just round this up with a homework question. How do these different waves of feminism affect some of the set texts you've been looking at? You might want to think about how this might apply to music videos, such as Beyonce's Formation video, or perhaps think about what you see in the news. For example, how do the Daily Mail or the Mail Online represent women of colour compared to, say, The Guardian? That brings us on to the next issue of Media Mag, out now. Media Mag! Yay! (laughs) There's loads of brilliant articles in there. One I wanted to look at was Good Cop, Bad Cop which is uh, by Jonathan Nunns, who's probably one of my favourite media mag writers. In it, he looks at the depiction of cops in TV. So, for example, he focuses particularly on life on Mars and also misogyny in the real-world police force. Yeah. So, essentially, his argument is that while we're supposed to laugh at Gene Hunt and his caveman-like approach to women, he's turned into one of those characters that people are hero-worshipping when they should be laughing at Yeah, them. Yeah, Gene Hunt, like, you look at him, you just go... 
you're meant to be a caricature of the 70s and the 70s very famously was not a great time <laughs> you know, yeah, so. absolutely Jonathan Nunns has this brilliant line where he says, Gene may catch a killer, but he normalises the values that made him. And I think that's really important because we end up saying, like, the way this person acts is bad, but damn it, he gets results. <laughs> he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do anything by the book. He doesn't have any rules, not even his own. <laughs> have you ever heard of um, copaganda? <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh at that, but that's that's an excellent term, to be okay. fair. So, obviously, copaganda is a, a combination of cop and propaganda. Of course. And it links back to this thing called the dragnet effect. So, about mm, 50 years ago or so, the one of the first police procedurals was a TV show called Dragnet, uh, based around the, the LAPD. And what the producers of that show did, they got the LAPD to check the authenticity in exchange for making sure that cops were always shown in a good light. Oh, So, that's okay. 50 years ago, but it's still... <laughs> One of the sort of staples of, of, of TV shows that we see, like police procedurals, where the cops are, are always presented as the good guys and we're always positioned to see things from their perspective, which is not always how it is. That, to me, initially just feels problematic, just in general. What else have we got, Phil? So uh, I was reading uh, the article about RuPaul's Drag Race by April McCarthy with a little teeny bit of help from Judith Butler uh, and her theories. Um, what I liked about this article is how it sort of um, challenges gender binarism and also as well you, you, how it discusses the fact that RuPaul's Drag Race does uh, promote a positive self-image especially in the face of the sort of societal norms that you would face you know being you know, of there being like you know a binary sort of gender even male or female uh, and I think a lot of people can learn uh, just as a personal I think a lot of people can learn from yeah. RuPaul's Drag Race even though they're not into drag it show it just asks the question can you learn to be okay with who you are this article just goes to explain a little bit further how Drag Race does actually break down those barriers, especially in a mainstream medium as well, because it's become very popular. I think that's great. So RuPaul was also featured quite famously in the You Need to Calm Down video yes. by Taylor Swift, which links us to our next article that we're going to be talking about. And as you know, Phil, I am an OG Taylor fan. <laughs> one thing that I never one thing I never realized. I knew you liked Taylor Swift. I didn't realise how much of a Taylor Swift fan you were until about a year or two ago. Ever since I saw her performing at the CMAs in 2006, I have loved her music. I'll be honest, I didn't know at that point that she'd be soundtracking all my breakups and important moments from that point <laughs> onwards, but there we go. So Matt Taylor wrote a really comprehensive roundup of the reason why Taylor is re-releasing her albums. I mean, it's a great article, and I wish I'd gotten there first because it would mean I'd finally found a way to monetize my obsession with Taylor Alison Swift's lyrics. <laughs> Do you know why she's re-releasing her albums? I know it's a rights issue. Yeah. So what's interesting is Taylor is single-handedly trying to take on the very way that music industry is designed, and I think, from what I can see, she's sick of young artists getting exploited and signing away a lot of their rights to their intellectual property for the rest of their lives. I mean, she signed with big machine when she was just 14 years old and then since big machine went on to sell the rights to uh scooter braun who was a man that she absolutely detested i mean his name is scooter like who's called scooter (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know right what i find particularly fascinating about this is that years earlier we had people like prince and george michael who were fighting similar battles But because they only had mainstream media to report on what they were doing, they were often presented as being greedy and money-grabbing. 
Whereas, because Taylor has her own social media, she can communicate with her fans directly, and she doesn't have to have her motives re-articulated by someone else. She can mm. get in her. She can get her point across straight away. Yeah. I really hope she smashes the music industry and gets to build it back into a fairer place. It's a crying shame, really, because yeah. there should be more of a, an avenue for young people to be able to get their music out there without selling their soul. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. What else have we got, Phil? So I had a I had a cheeky little read of the AI Authors article by Shahina Udin. Our girl Shahina, you mean? Our girl Shahina, yeah. We had a great chat with her and um you know, like saying an absolute pleasure to to read one of her articles again. So this one was quite fascinating. It's about the idea of um, you know a, a, an artificial intelligence writing, say, a, a piece of prose. Like, and, yeah. and, and in this example that she gives, a a novel. Yeah. And I just found it interesting how she delves into the idea of looking for the author's intention and meaning that isn't necessarily there in texts. So I quite enjoyed reading this one. I, I like the fact that it's sort of that sort of interpretation of is there meaning in these kind of texts. Again, with it being an AI author as well, it sort of gives life to that idea of the author not being as important as the text itself, a la death of the author. But one thing that I got from the article in a serious point is that you know, I do feel it's important for a text, no matter what it is, to take on a life of its own and have meaning and importance separate from the author. Yeah. Whether it was written by an AI or ret- written by, you know, a human being, mm-hmm. it's good to be able to, to just take that and let it be its own beast and be its own sort of entity. There is tons more to check out in issue 79 of Media Mag, including my tips on how to shoot an interview. So, if your school or college is a subscriber... Get your hands on a copy ASAP. And if it is not a subscriber, then just give your teachers a hard stare mm-hmm. until they mm-hmm. sign up and, you know, we'll say no more about it. Love it. Oh, it's also worth mentioning, if your school signs up for a web subscription, that will give you and your classmates a login that you can use to access a whole host of articles from the comfort of your own homes. Now it's time for... <gasps> Two Minute Terminology Time! Two Minute Terminology Time! Oh! Yeah. Okay. This week, our question comes from Charlotte. Hi, this is Charlotte from Home Spark Six Form. I'd like to know what the Kuleshov effect is. So, Phil, the Kuleshov effect. Two minutes. Go. The Kuleshov effect is a film editing montage effect uh, demonstrated by Russian filmmaker Lev Kuleshov in the 1910s and 1920s. It is a mental phenomenon by which viewers derive more meaning from the interaction of two sequential shots than from a single shot in isolation. In 1921, Kuleshov set up a series of cinematic demonstrations that cut back and forth between a man and three different things, namely a girl in a coffin, a bowl of soup, and a woman laying on a chaise long. To see what emotions that could be created with the contrast. The soup showed hunger. The dead kid showed sadness. The woman showed lust. This theory defined film and film editing. It proved that a film is just the juxtaposition of two shots sewn together to create emotions. These shots can manipulate space and time, and manipulate the audience's reaction to each of them. A good example of this effect in modern cinema is the what's in the box scene from David Fincher's film Seven. This scene is built around cutting back and forth from the box to each person's reactions. What's interesting here is that Fincher uses three completely separate emotions to all refer to the box. There's Brad Pitt's horror, Morgan Freeman's fear, and the killer's elation. These distinct emotions all work when you cut back and forth to the box because the audience needs to know all three points of view for the scene to progress. Today, 
The Kuleshov effect reminds filmmakers, particularly editors, that the context in which an actor's face appears affects how that face is perceived. Editing is more than compiling shots to tell a story, it's carefully selecting the shots and angles that manipulate the audience's perception of the story. Something as simple as a reaction shot or a close-up can make a big difference in how an audience perceives the action and message of a film. That's awesome. Lovely. Nicely done. Thank you. So that's about us done for today, ladies and gentlemen. If you want more Giles and Phil content, you can check out the God of Film podcast. Make sure to leave us a review, and we will see you next time. Bye! Bye, guys! The Media Mag podcast is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our theme tune is composed by Rick Lee, and our logo is designed by Rebecca Scambler. Our executive producer is Claire Pollard. The Media Mag podcast is a Dask production, created for the English and Media Centre. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case, just write your review into a simple haiku. Your words will cut deep.